our discussion of uh, Kierkegaard, um, Soren Kierkegaard, and we thought we would focus a little bit on the philosophical fragments and uh, Kierkegaard's relationship uh, to Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and and then also a, a, a bit uh, with either or. But maybe, uh, John, let's set the, the scene here. Is, you know, I think that what Kierkegaard is doing, in, in a broad way, I think that he finds himself part of a Hegelian project that, in a sense, I think we can all appreciate and, and I hope everybody understands that I'm going to repudiate Hegel at the end of this, but that I think in a sense we almost need to pass through Hegel in the way that Kierkegaard does, in that Hegel is grounding his understanding of truth securely in history, which is very anti-Platonic, very anti-Greek, so that Hegel is at the end of, you know, the Enlightenment, the end of, really, I think, the end of modernity, that you have this notion of truth as a static, absolutely transcendent truth, you know, that is at Leibniz that talks about the broad, ugly ditch of history, and we cannot leap that ditch, meaning that you cannot have the contingent truths of history serve as the absolute truths of reason. And of course, if that's the case, we've just wiped out Christianity. If reason is uh, one that does not ground itself awe-historically, in other words, in a Platonic understanding, uh, then uh, the the idea is that uh, we've lost reason. But, of course, what's happening in Christianity is that Christ comes to us in history and reveals himself to history, or in history and and to history. uh, And, of course, uh, I think that that's precisely where we find what Kierkegaard is dealing with in the philosophical fragments. But, of course, the problem here, and the sense, I think, in which he is not Hegelian, is obviously he does not want to confine God to the movement of history. And so he's going to talk about a kind of eternal moment in time. Uh, Is this this your understanding? How would you picture the relationship between Kierkegaard and Hegel? Yeah, um, if I was just to take a step back for a moment and look at Hegel and one of Kierkegaard's biggest critiques of Hegel is that Hegel actually isn't dialectical enough. So Hegel, of course, views history as being an unfolding type of process or that logic is unfolding within history through the process of dialectics. But for Hegel, these dialectics end up resolved, hence the resolution, and you have um, truth, the whole truth coming at the end of this resolution. For Kierkegaard, though, he realizes some truths or some things cannot be resolved. Uh, So there are paradoxes or there are uh, more absolute dialectics, things that will stand in contrast with one another. And this is how he approaches then um, 
a journey, I guess, into Christianity, his writings sort of forming this journey as he looks upon one way of living or a sphere of existence, as he calls them, and how those butt up against other spheres of existence. So even in the philosophical fragments, it's the philosophical point of view or the ethical point of view considering the religious. And the religious considered from that lower uh, telos or that that lower place of existence in his hierarchy is never going to be able to comprehend or understand fully the religious. But of course, the religious then, if one would transcend the ethical into the religious, looking backwards, um, the ethical doesn't disappear, but it's simply an ethical, ethically concerned life is dethroned, decentered, and in the religious, the center is God. And so a life takes as its, um, its full attention is directed towards God, and that is what life then revolves around. And before the philosophical fragments doing that, he does the same thing in either or, first contrasting the aesthetic with the ethical in the same way. And, and maybe I'm, uh, I've read so much Zizek here that uh, I can't extract Zizek's reading from Hegel. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Zizek's reading is that Hegel, in fact, uh, does not really, uh, and maybe this is just what Zizek wants to find in Hegel, but he, his point is that, that you never really arrive at spirit or you never really arrive at a synthesis mm-hmm. in Hegel, but what you... And I suppose this is the typical atheistic reading of Hegel, Mm -hmm. that what you have is just pure movement, and there is no end to history. Well, that's certainly more interesting than a 19th century reading of Hegel. And we have to remember, Kierkegaard never himself listened to Hegel's lectures. He's reading Hegel, but his point of contact with Hegelianism is through... um, first and foremost, two Danish philosophers, and one, Martinson, who is his tutor while he's at school, later becomes the bishop of the church and invokes much ire from Kierkegaard. Another prominent Hegelian philosopher is uh, Johann Ludwig Heiberg, and Kierkegaard has a lot of experience with him because in Heiberg's house is where the social elite in Copenhagen meet. And uh, Kierkegaard is running in that circle, and he will also decide that he doesn't care very much for Johann Ludwig Heiberg. So that's his point of contact with Hegelianism. And it's just to say that their reading of Hegel is that uh, Hegel might have missed spirit by a bit, but spirit is certainly going to arrive during their lifetimes, and they're going to usher that new age in. And, of course, the uh, the first... Uh, 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 and what what Kierkegaard is up is that in the Danish church, there is this infatuation with Hegel. And I, and I think he's very much reacting to that. Uh, now, whether it, I think the point you're making is that it may not be Hegel, but it may be their incorporation of Hegel mm-hmm. and understanding of Hegel that he's reacting. Against. Yeah, and though, I mean, there, I don't think Kierkegaard would have considered Hegel an Orthodox Christian either. So it's... <laughs> It's not that on one hand Kierkegaard favors what he thinks to be a true Hegel versus the Hegelians. Um, uh, he just doesn't care very much for how the Hegelians are totalizing he- Hegel's system. So that perhaps Hegel didn't actually think spirit was going to arrive, or maybe he was describing this idea of motion. 
Um, people are arguing about this in the 19th century, but what ends up happening is that the, the first set of Hegelians, which Martinson is definitely uh, one of those, the early Hegelians, um, are, have every hallmark of sort of the Enlightenment hubris and Kierkegaard will definitely resent this, especially from a Christian point of view. But what he is doing in the philosophical fragments seems pointedly, uh, in, in a sense, anti-Hegelian, or at least uh, over and against the mode of arriving at truth through reason. Well, in a way, I would say yes. But in a way, you also have to remember the pseudonymous character uh, of the work. So it isn't a Christian who is reasoning about what God must be in the attributes of God, but it's Johannes Climacus who's a philosopher. So it, there is a partial knowledge of God in the uh, fragments, and that knowledge isn't a knowledge that's held by a Christian, but by a philosopher himself. Well, he, uh, you know, he's picturing, especially in uh, the early portion of the fragments, uh, you know, he, he first of all is identifying with the Socratic notion that you don't have the truth, that the truth in some way uh, has, has escaped you. And, of course, in a Socratic or Platonic idea is that uh, to arrive at the truth is to remember rightly, is to recollect. And the positing there is of an immortal soul, you almost need, you know, even up to Kant, you're going to need the immortal soul to have truth. Uh, and what Kierkegaard is uh, seemingly uh, combating is this notion, first of all, I think, uh, that, that truth is in some way comes to us in its infinite static form because we are infinite, you know, creatures. But rather what he's describing is the way a finite creature who stands outside of the truth could come to truth. Yeah, I think you may uh, be moving too quickly. And if you were to put the philosophical fragments in the context of Kierkegaard's work and his framework of the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious, in the first part of either or, and all of the aesthetic documents, um, A, as the pseudonym is known, considers memory. And for the aesthetic position, it's much better not to remember. But actually, if you truly hold the aesthetic position, remembering and not remembering uh, almost boil down to a sameness. And so he'll talk about uh, the rotation of crops and how uh, the soil doesn't change, but it's the crops that you put on the soil to reserve some type of interest. And this is how A comes up with a philosophy of being able to live the idle life without being bored. How do you combat boredom? And so he says, what you need to be able to do is forget and remember at will. And now, of course, if we were to put that position up against Judge Wilhelm's position, which is just simply the ethical, not necessarily what Kierkegaard considers a religious point of view, but an ethical point of view. And Wilhelm is often looking at the ethical in and through the context of marriage. You cannot be fully devoted to a spouse if you're constantly practicing this remembering and forgetting 
at will so that things don't become boring. In other words, uh, you've been around your spouse so much you're worried that you might overindulge in uh, engaging with another human being, and it could get boring for you. So you must forget this and go on to something else before you get too tied down. And in this way, the aesthetic's life can't be said to be a history because really it's just a bunch of individual points of uh, remembering or forgetting, moving on from one thing to the other. But for the ethical, he is concerned with being able to, and here's where memory comes in, and this is definitely what you were describing as the platonic or uh, philosophical view of remembering, that you have access to something higher, transcendent, static, and it's in and through memory. And so Wilhelm will argue with A, saying that the only way one could live a truly ethical and uh, right life is this constant remembering, such that the events in one's life, the moments in one's life, form a solid history, because in the ethical sense of things, you're devoted to someone or something else. But it's something or someone else on your plane of existence, so another person, a spouse, for example. And this is what I think in the philosophical fragments is being pushed up against a religious point of view. So, yes, for the philosopher, for the ethical, uh, remembering is definitely defined within the philosophical tradition. But it's the philosopher who is trying to understand the religious point of view, which, mind you, in the philosophical fragments never happens. But as he's formulating, he begins to realize that actually uh, memory or moments, history, doesn't function for the religious the same way that it does for the ethical or the philosophical. And what that will end up being, I mean, if we wanted to jump into the religious sphere, it's dealing with God and how do we have, how do we fit into God's history rather than our own? So it's not just about the individual's life having coherence, but uh, the individual's life has coherence within God's story. But I don't think that Johannes Climacus ever gets there in the philosophical fragments. Well, uh, yeah, in the, in the fragments, he's describing in some detail the process of conversion and describing, uh, it seems to be comparing conversion then to a philosophical quest. Yes. And, and, uh, and of course, a philosophical quest, you know, how, how would you uh, arrive at the truth? Well, the, the two pictures are that you, uh, you know, is it Parmenides that he teaches the, you know, the the Socrates? Uh, uh, I can't remember that he teaches the the slave. You know, well, actually, you already know higher math, and he you know prompts him, and and so the picture uh, is that truth then is absolute because the individual is absolute, and. Uh, arriving at absolute truth is just rightly remembering. And, of course, what this reminds me of in uh, this fusion of uh, truth in a philosophical sense, and and, uh, unfortunately it gets confused with a Christian truth, is Anselm's ontological argument. In other words, the direction in which Anselm would go is the same direction that Socrates would go. Uh, that you can rightly remember who you are. But, of course, Anselm is reflecting uh, Augustine and, you know, the De Trinitate, the idea that God rightly remembers. But 
the idea is that we're created in the image of God and therefore we have this access to an absolute truth because in some way, as on the order of a Platonic understanding, uh, and I hope, I hope uh, this this just sounds this just gets boring and and philosophical because it's in its turn to the notion of a static, objective, impersonal truth. Uh, that truth is defined then uh, by this ahistorical, impersonal uh, mode. And unfortunately, I think that in as much as Anselm, and to the degree that Anselm has influenced us, you know, uh, uh, through Descartes and, and others, uh, that what we our, our very definition of truth then is on the order of the Socratic notion in which memory is you know rightly remembering you know Socrates you know says know thyself that uh, uh, that the unexamined life is not worth living as Woody Allen would say yes and the examined one isn't a real bargain either uh, that. That is that in some way we can examine ourselves and arrive at truth. And so what he's positing, he's posing with the idea of uh, arriving at absolute truth, though in a finite historical understanding. Is that is that the significance there of memory? For you're talking the philosophical fragments that we're remembering something in history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, well, yeah. but Johannes Climacus isn't, and my only point is Johannes Climacus is arriving at a position where he's taking history seriously. He's pondering taking history seriously. But in the philosophical fragments, the reader may infer that, oh, he's talking about Christianity and, um, you know, read into the situation. But Climacus himself, I mean, Kierkegaard is really doing something with a pseudonym there, um, and it, he doesn't get there. In other words, the philosopher Johannes Climacus, as he's writing, is making these distinctions between the Socratic tradition and what he takes to be a knowledge that humans have. Over and over and again in the book, he keeps saying, oh, well, you probably think I'm uh, being you know terrible about explaining this to you and how boring and I am and how dreadful it is because you think even a kid might know what I'm explaining to you. Well, he's explaining the story of Christ and why Christ has to come, but he just keeps referring to him as the God. And so I think for in the book itself, Climacus's point isn't Christianity is different than say the philosophical tradition, but he is saying. What does it look like to live with something besides just another individual as your point of reference for existence? So what would it look like if it was the God? And that's the phrase that he uses throughout the work. And so I just, I don't think it's, the work itself is not as complete in Kierkegaard's framework to be able to say, here is the, um, you don't arrive at the Christian point of view, in other words, in the philosophical fragments. Uh, You're always considering the higher sphere of existence from the lower in the philosophical fragments. So later, Kierkegaard is going to do the same thing backwards. He's going to consider the ethical from the point of the religious in works of love. Uh, 
I mean, in the in the beginning here, that that uh, granted what you're saying, nonetheless, he's describing Christian conversion as it compares to a philosophical understanding, right? And so he begins with the idea of what is the what is the human condition? Well. We can't, you know, if it's not, in other words, he's rejecting the notion that we have the truth, because if we already have the truth, uh, then we can just, you know, arrive at an absolute truth, and it's an historical mm-hmm. truth. And so we can't have the truth, but his idea, or we can't be the truth, the truth isn't available to us. But his question is, why isn't it available mm-hmm. to us? And he says, because we are untrue. Mm-hmm. And the reason we are untrue is, and I I think this is pervasive in Kierkegaard. Of course, it's very interesting to me uh, from a Lacanian perspective that the reason we are untruth is because we have become entangled with the untruth in and through ourselves. That what is preventing us from arriving at the truth is us. Right? Yes. And the question that you have to ask, though, is how is Johannes Climacus, the philosopher, saying this? How does he have knowledge of what he's writing? Well, the next step, he says, he assumes. Maybe I should let you answer your own question, though. No, go ahead. The next step, he says, is new birth. You have to be born again. You have to start all over. So are you reading Climacus as a Christian? I, I mean, I think that goes against... Well, I'm just, that's just what he's talking about. Well, I know he is, but you realize he's considering this position. He himself hasn't been converted to Christianity, and so he's considering what does this look like from the point of the philosophical. And so the question that has to... If we're going to talk about it at a baseline of epistemology, you have to ask, well, how does he know all of this? He's not been reborn. Uh, He says the untruth then is not merely outside the truth, but is polemical against the truth, which is expressed by saying that he himself has forfeited and is forfeiting the condition. He says, let us call this sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, The teacher who is going to prompt him to give up sin uh, in other words, he's, re- he's been born in freedom. And now we find ourselves in unfreedom. But what is the nature of our unfreedom? Our unfreedom is a kind of self-binding. You know, and this is, I think, very biblical, but it's also very Freudian and Lacanian, that we are free individuals who are bound by sin But the sin that binds us is not one that's foisted upon us from outside. It's one that we uh, have uh, bound, you know, we've we've relinquished uh, freedom for unfreedom. And so, uh, to to my mind, uh, whether wherever he's standing in this, why do you think it's important to say that he's recognizing this, not from a Christian viewpoint? Because I feel like uh, the conclusion that you're drawing is that um, 
the knowledge, that he's contrasting Christian knowledge with a philosophical framework. But how would he have the Christian knowledge if there was a complete contrast between the philosophical and the Christian? How, how is Johannes Climacus making the contrast? If he's a, he's a philosopher, not a theologian, he's writing from a philosophical point of view, you can't, you can't read philosophical fragments as saying, oh, this is a complete contrast of what the philosophical ethical sphere of existence looks like compared to the Christian religious because it's not written from the Christian religious point of view. And so then you would be positing that this philosopher has a knowledge that he's not supposed to have because he is supposed to be uh, within the Platonic Socratic tradition that he's writing about. You're saying that, that he's writing from within a Socratic tradition? Johannes Climacus is writing from a philosophical tradition. So he, in Kierkegaard, has two words. They go together. So it's, it's, I'm not saying that's where Kierkegaard is, but this work is supposed to ponder the philosophical from, I mean, ponder the religious from the position of the ethical, from the position of the philosophical. Later on, he's going to do the opposite, and he's going to ponder the ethical, the philosophical, from the position of the religious. But if you read the philosophical fragments as saying there's a complete epistemological divide between what the philosophers know and what the Christians know, why do you have this philosopher that knows both, both in other words? You, you're, you have a problem there. Uh, let me say one more thing here. I, I want to draw out the importance of what you're saying because again and again he returns to Christian language. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're in a position of untruth. You have bound yourself through you know, your own relinquishing of freedom, and so you need a teacher. He says, let's call this teacher who is going to save us from the slavery of sin a savior. Mm -hmm. Let us call him a savior, for he does indeed save the learner from unfreedom, saves him from himself. Let us call him a deliverer, for he does indeed deliver the person who had imprisoned himself. And no one is so dreadfully imprisoned, and no captivity is so impossible to break out of as that in which the individual holds himself captive. Uh, that he's picturing then the self-binding of sin and the reason we need a savior and deliverer. Now, whether he's doing this from a philosophical point of view or not, why do you think that is so important? Because um, the knowledge that we're discussing. So he, him, he realizes from the philosophical point of view that he needs a savior, which means that knowledge is not innately Christian knowledge because he's not a Christian. He's understanding from the philosophical what he needs, what's missing, what could bring about a position of truth, and he does this from the philosophical position, which means in some sense they're not completely uh, div divided against each other. Or not yeah, and I, 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 don't, I don't have a particular problem with that, that, that someone can see their need for a savior if, and this seems to be what he's doing, is uh, even a good philosopher, mm -hmm. if they followed his line of argument, 
understands you're, you're bound up here in a system that the only way you're going to get out of it is through rebirth. Which also would mean that his reason is not uh, completely in untruth. Right, that the philosopher is not. In other words, the untruth, well, how do you mean? I mean, when he says, what Kierkegaard said is the, that you are untruth. But it's, that's not Kierkegaard saying that. It's Johannes Climacus. I mean, Kierkegaard is going to reanalyze this book in an unpseudonym. He's going to sign the works of love. Mm-hmm. So he is looking back, and he's going to reanalyze what he's uh, written about. So how, it, how, what's, the con, what's the contrast then? The content. So the philosopher realizes the need for a relation to something transcendent, to a savior, to the God. And he's constantly aware of this. How is he aware of this? Well, he's aware of it by his own reason, meaning that because of who he is, he's already in some sort of relationship to the truth, to the transcendent, albeit one that's not saving for him, uh, one that has not even enlightened him or made him truth. In the works of love, and you actually get into a little bit in the philosophical fragments how love needs to be uh, in the mix or positive. In the works of love, he does the reverse. And because he recognizes that the relationship that he's going to have with the transcendent is based upon the love of God in Christ, the philosophical framework that was laid out in, say, the philosophical fragments, still logical, still true, makes sense, but it's filled out in this other context of the religious. And is the significance, then, of what you're saying that... Uh, the degree or the understanding that even though he's describing a position of untruth, that even in this position of untruth, outside of uh, being exposed to revelation, that one could come to a certain understanding, uh, uh, to an understanding of the human predicament that in fact is correlates or is parallel to a Christian understanding but you got there uh, not on the basis of revelation. That, and of course, at the end of the day, uh, you, you only have a negative answer. <laughs> like, you don't know, what do you need to do with that? Mm-hmm. So, when, and that's, I think, for Kierkegaard, his whole project is uh, always asking the question, now what are you going to do? So you know this, what are you going to do about it? And so the problem with the ethical position is the philosopher wants to do something, but he's not able to make a relationship with uh, who is the Christian would call God, Jesus. That relationship is not possible for him completely in the ethical framework. Because the ethical takes as its relation another human being. That's just the easiest way to describe it because that's what Kierkegaard himself uses in either or. So the ethical perspective is not a selfish perspective. It is a perspective that can make decisions. In some way, it's a good perspective to have, but it's not the good. Or in other words, it's not, uh, you're not, one is not in a relationship to God, or God is not their center and focus for life, but rather another individual, or maybe one's work, something like that. I, and I guess the question to pause, uh, to, to think about here, is do we agree? Do we agree that Kierkegaard in the mode of a non-Christian philosopher or that a non-Christian philosopher could arrive at the insight of 
being in absolute untruth, having the need for a savior that would produce a rebirth and that this could occur then in time in what he calls the fullness of time, are those things that you think uh, we can arrive at through a philosophical understanding? Yeah, I think that in some way that uh, that type of knowledge, and when we say arrive at through a philosophical understanding, it's not as if the philosophical understanding stands apart from the grace of God. And I think that... uh, you know, I'm not for sure if you get there in Kierkegaard. I just don't know. I haven't read enough of his later works to know how they all fit together. But I would say that that knowledge within the philosophical understanding is not one that's devoid of grace. So that's there is no such thing as a truly innate and secular human knowledge, in other words. Well, I don't know that that's an important issue here. Is it? That- well, that's the only way I could answer the question, meaning I... Because would I agree with Kierkegaard? Yes, but only on those conditions that I just listed. That you're saying that one who might come to the understanding that he has has not arrived there through pure reason. Yeah. That it's through the grace of God. Yes. And I, I guess this is the problem I have uh, with, and, and I'm saying it's a problem because I don't completely grasp it or understand it, that when he's describing the untruth, of course, even being untruth in the untruth, that doesn't mean that there is no truth of Mm -hmm. a certain kind in the untruth. And so he's describing, I think, the truths that you might arrive at, though you've been completely deceived, though you Mm -hmm. exist in the self-binding of sin, nonetheless, you have the capacity for an understanding, and I guess the the argument here, and I don't I don't know where to come down on it, is how much truth do we have outside of the special historical revelation that is given to us in Christ? I think um, reading Kierkegaard, what may make it a little easier is that he's definitely dealing with truth as a form of existing. And so it, truth in the sense that he's using it, their untruth and truth, isn't necessarily just what you know or what you can comprehend or even the coherence of one's knowledge. But when he says untruth, it's not just a reference to those things. It's actually a reference to one's way of life. And so no matter how much truth you might know, apart from living with the love of God as your center and having Christ's life present in one's own life, which is eventually what you're going to do. That's the kind of picture he paints in works of love. Uh, then your way of existence is untrue. It's untruth. It's not uh, in direct reference or it's not directed towards God as creator and redeemer and sustainer. Are you saying that his notion of the lie, the notion of being deceived, uh, is more of, in, in other words, it's, uh, a confounding, not of a mental sort, but of a ethical sort. Yeah. Well, more than just ethical, I mean, ethical in one sense, but um, I mean, there's a reason that people later call themselves existentialists following Kierkegaard. It's how you exist in the world. And, and uh, this uh, may, I, I mean, I don't know of anybody. I mean, uh, that even Lacan reads Kierkegaard, you know, at the end of the day, and he says, well, actually all I'm doing is 
describing what Kierkegaard calls sin. Hmm. Um, and the difference, though, it seems to me, of course, in a Lacanian or in a Zizakian atheistic understanding, that human uh, personality is constituted in a deception, in a lie, that there is only this deception. Now, in fact, uh, even though, even in Lacan, it, it, even as an atheist, I'm never quite sure because he seems to never relinquish human agency mm-hmm. in this. That is what I'm saying is we may have in, in Anticlimacus uh, something very close to what's given to us in a Zizakian uh or this, I'm sorry, this is Johannes Clinicus, not mm-hmm. anti-Clinicus, uh, that, that we have something very uh, close to, to Johannes Clinicus. Well, and you know, the interesting point about that may be uh, what I mentioned earlier, is that for Kierkegaard, Hegel's not dialectical enough. And so uh, maybe, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, with somebody like Zizek and Lacan, <laughs> they're making Hegel maybe perhaps more dialectical than he was but they're refashioning Hegel in a way that Kierkegaard would have appreciated him more. Well, the problem in a Zizekian reading of Hegel is, of course, uh, that he's an atheist. Well, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not Christianity. But I don't think, for Kierkegaard, I don't necessarily think he ever thought Hegel was an Orthodox Christian. So uh, that was never his starting point for appreciating anything in Hegel. But what you get then in the atheistic reading of Hegel is just continual movement. Hmm. There is only history and time. There is thesis and antithesis. Yeah. There is no synthesis. Yeah. And I think what Kierkegaard is describing uh, is, in fact, this fullness of time, this moment of time, this point of rebirth in which in time, uh, that we arrive at the truth. I'm not sure in Hegel uh, that the fullness, you know, that, that that the absolute truth is available to us. Well, yeah, I mean, even for Kierkegaard, um, to say you arrive at the truth, well, you certainly arrive on the right way to the truth. Right, right, there's and no so, apprehending. Yeah, so I think maybe there's still a similarity, although a very uh, dissimilar similarity. There. Because he's going to stay with paradox. Yes. Yeah. That's, I mean, he thinks that you're always becoming a Christian. Right. Right. And yeah. and and I think a good Orthodox, you know, if you you you're saved, you're being mm-hmm. saved, you will be saved. Yeah. I'm on the I'm on my way to this thing. I kind of know what it looks like. Uh, I don't know that I <laughs> I've yeah. got there yet. Yeah. Which is in, you know, that's so radical in Kierkegaard's lifetime that on his deathbed, you've got people asking him, well, you know, do you believe that Christ has died and forgiven you? And Kierkegaard's response to questions like that are, well, of course. But would he have called himself a Christian? You know, he would have maybe come up with something, well, I'm becoming one. So that's a very radical point of view, I think, during his time. And maybe a radical point of view that's aimed at the hubris of a Christianity yes. that just imagines that it's arrived, that yeah. we now have the truth. So, And I think you're right in imagining probably a Hegelian Christianity. So um, 
are all the necessary orthodox components of Christianity really crucial to the Hegelian system? No. <laughs> but just the idea that it's through this means that, you know, rational, logical truth is unfolded in history. Well, that's not, that's really uh, not the case for the biblical picture of Christianity. That I mean, even the truth was revealed, um, it's we who need the truth unfolded to us. This is the difference between Elaine Badu and Zizek, in a sense, that uh, for Badu, when you talk about, and of course they're all atheists, but for Badu, when you talk about resurrection, uh, he doesn't mean a, a literal resurrection. He means something on the order of new birth. But for him, the new birth is in no way something that you can uh, speculate about or, or reason about. It's just something that's totally disconnected from death drive or from the deception. But in a sense, Zizek is more Kierkegaardian in his notion, and, and, and you know, in Lacan too, that actually what they're describing then is on the order uh, the process, you could almost read this, you know, philosophical fragments. And, and like you're saying, it, we're not, it's not necessarily Christianity because these guys do the same thing. Yeah. They talk about, you know, a, a new birth. They talk about, uh, you know, resurrection life. They talk about sin and deception, but they're talking about it. Uh, and absorbing a Christian understanding into a philosophical understanding. Now, whether the, you know, the question is, could they have gotten there apart from the Apostle Paul? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But they would, in fact, I don't know how they would answer that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, what Zizek is saying, well, you have to pass through Christianity mm -hmm. to be a true atheist. And, and so I guess that's my my the, that our initial point of entry here. Mm -hmm. you, your emphasis, well, he's not a Christian, uh, but certainly he's someone who's familiar with Christianity. And uh, well, I think about Kierkegaard society. If you're a Dane, you're a Christian, mm -hmm. and so I think in that sense he's highlighting why without uh, the actual content of Christianity, the love of God in your life, there is no Christianity. Bring that out some more. I mean, you're, you're, uh, the, you're referencing the non-pseudonymous works here. And so yeah. you... Yeah, I think mainly um, it comes down to that he really is dealing with a way... He, you know, he talks about these points of view as spheres of existing... And so um, existing is a lot more, entails a lot more than just knowing or being able to rationalize something. And ultimately, that is the problem between the ethical and the religious. So take another work, still pseudonymous, but um, that brings us out very well, fear and trembling. Well, it, it's not the knowledge that is the problem. Abraham understands God's commandment. He undoubtedly understands the ethical point of view of the world. How do you actually carry through with take your son up and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah? Well, that leap of faith involves a change in one's way of existing. And for Kierkegaard, that's what he's trying to bring about. 
it's not just a knowledge of Christianity, a knowledge of Jesus, or even a knowledge of the world through Jesus, but a change in one's existence based upon that uh, fact, historical fact in time that a Savior has come and that in and through coming has taught us something. But the teaching isn't limited to the uh, noetic, but is very much tied up with how, how is one going to be in the world. And I guess the question, you know, he's, he's writing all of this in reaction to Christendom, and he's lumping these Hegelians that he's surrounded with, mm-hmm. with Christendom. And so what he's really saying is, these guys, they may understand what I'm saying here. In other words, he may be saying what I'm saying about Zizek, about his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. They have an understanding of the need for rebirth. They have an understanding of the need for repentance. Uh, but do they really? Have they really? Uh, in other words, I think yeah. that he's finding them in some way that they've fallen short, that they're, they themselves are not really Christians. Well, it isn't. This is a neat parallel because Zizek, Zizek talks about having to pass through Christianity. Well, in many ways, isn't that what the Hegelian philosophers think they're doing? They've passed through the primitive uh, Orthodox Christianity that people used to have, that superstitious stuff, to a more enlightened form of Christianity. Um, but for Kierkegaard, there is no passing through, because the truth isn't something that you pass through Christianity to achieve or something that's coming to you in time. He has the phrase in uh, practicing Christianity, the truth is the way. And, of course, the way being the way of Christ. So that uh, his, you know, obviously the Danes of his day uh, would not be on the order of, of claiming some sort of secular faith. But in a sense, I think that in Kierkegaard's mind, that, that's what he's, he would almost equate those two things. They're claiming as much as socially acceptable. Yeah, that, that uh, in other words, that what they've got is something on the order of a philosophical understanding that's fallen short of a radical existential encounter with God. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, in as much as he is correct, and in as much as uh, Christians today are on the order of, you know, Christendom of Kierkegaard's day, I think that's the the uh, the radical critique that we may, even though people may not uh, be familiar, you know, that that uh, philosophy has sort of invaded uh, the domain of theology. So you get kind of the uh, you know the Paul Tillich and uh, this sort of liberal Protestant. Christianity that ironically they they are not unaware of Kierkegaard, but they seem to have missed the point that that he's making in regard to philosophy. That philosophy can you bring you so far, uh, but you're still you've still fallen short. In other words, they want to go beyond Christianity with Hegel and so. Yeah, yeah, philosophy. Uh, for Kierkegaard is a fine endeavor as long as you do it within the context of having a concern for God. <laughs> it's very much different than uh, doing philosophy from a different point of view. So in, in uh, your, your uh, 
Would you classify, uh, you know, distinguish for us the sense in which Kierkegaard is and is not Hegelian? I think that he takes up a lot of Hegelian themes, and how could he not be affected by Hegel and stand with it? Maybe he's post-Hegelian. Maybe we could say that about Kierkegaard. He gets it. He sees that there's some benefits, but really... um, there's a way of understanding Christianity that's much better. So he's already, he stands in contrast to Hegel or within Hegel, much in the same way I think that somebody like Haman stands with Kant. Sure, you make some good points every now and then, but really you've missed the big picture, which only Christianity can deliver. And I think that's very much Kierkegaard's stance. So he's got all these Hegelian themes in his work, but um, he's reappropriating them according to Orthodox Christianity, rather than doing the thing all the Hegelian philosophers and theologians want to do, which is to appropriate Christianity to Hegelian philosophy. And, of course, what Haman said about Kant is you're a nihilist. Yeah. Uh, And I don't know, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't, you know, when Kierkegaard is criticizing the philosopher. Your point is that may not be a direct encounter with Hegel. Yeah, I mean, he, like I said, he definitely does not think Hegel's an Orthodox Christian. So he's not Hegelian in the sense that he's a disciple of Hegel, but he does respect Hegel. Um, He has a lot less, if maybe not any, respect for Hegel's direct descendants. Schelling. Uh, Schelling, and then, of course, the Danish descendants, but yeah, in general. I think he sees what the Hegelians are doing with Hegel's philosophy as a much more arrogant, hubristic process of, we really are going to work everything out. And that's what, you know, that uh, the, the next step with Hegel is showing, in which you literally describe how God came into existence, how he came into mm-hmm. self-awareness, so that everything is reduced down to a philosophical understanding. Even the imminent understanding of who God is within himself. And Kierkegaard has no love for that sort of endeavor. I mean, that's got to be the strangest thing in the history of Kierkegaard. He attended Schelling's lectures. I, 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 uh, until I had read that biography uh, that we... Uh, uh, that uh, Backhouse's biography. I didn't realize it. What was it? It was like 40 lectures. That I mean, mm-hmm. he, like a year of you know worth of. Yeah, he was planning on attending more until he got tired of what was going on. Uh, and you know, this is of course uh, Zizek is just as fascinated with Schelling as he is with Hegel, and so would go all the way. And and in this is you know, is he true to Hegel? Well, probably not. He's probably a you know uh, a descendant of mm-hmm. Hegel, and uh, but of course I'm never sure that I, I, I honestly don't know uh, whether Hegel did, did you know I don't know did he really think of himself as a Lutheran? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, um, Martinson actually towards the end of his life he's always tried to be Hegelian. During the end of it, towards the end of his life, the beginning of the atheistic Hegelian movement begins, and then Martinson begins to dis- try to 
distance himself from Hegelian thought, though all of his life he's been trying to make Hegel popular in uh, Denmark through the church. So he even gets put in that sort of mind himself. Well, can I truly be a Danish Lutheran and be a Hegelian if this is what being a Hegelian means now? And so maybe there's two answers to that. I don't know. I mean, the descendants of of Hegel in Europe. I uh, when I was in Japan, I met a a wonderful guy from Iceland who was studying philosophy in Japan, and he explained to me that uh, he had really wanted uh, to to join the the state church and become a, a preacher, a minister in the state church, but he just didn't feel right as an atheist that he could do that. <laughs> <laughs> at least he had some reservation <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's what you're getting in these guys and I think that's what Kierkegaard is already seeing these, mm-hmm. this kind of flaky you know uh, uh, giving over of theology to a speculative philosophy mm-hmm. on the order of a, of a Hegelian mode of thought and, and of course it unfolds in uh, in Protestant liberalism to the fullest extent. So you get the death of God theology. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right there in Hegel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, that's the, the neat package here you can make is that, that with Luther, and I, again, I would blame Luther for Hegel, and I would blame Hegel for Nietzsche, that Luther gives us uh, the understanding, a rejection of scholasticism, and he talks about God dying on a cross. And, of course, what he was attempting to do was to get rid of the notions of uh, uh, that we can divide up the two natures of Christ. And Hegel comes along and describes the death of God on the cross as God. And here, you know, I like Jürgen Moltmann, but I'm afraid that Moltmann is just simply true to Hegel in his description of God taking suffering and death up into himself, that it was necessary for Christ to die so that God might take death up into himself. So that it's, it's Hegelian in that death is made absolute. Death is, is, is itself uh, the parameter, you know, that God, in, in, in a sense, uh, becomes absolute in his taking up death into himself, which is just a misunderstanding, I think, of the, the death and resurrection of Christ. And then the next step is, of course, uh, Nietzsche's death of God, that God's died and we killed him. Uh, I, I think that the, the modern atheism uh, is very much then... Uh, first of all, it's the failure of Protestant thought. Uh, it's the failure, uh, in, in a sense, to deal philosophically. You know. Yeah, it's the culmination of Protestant thought, in one sense. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that, yeah, what do you do with that? that uh, uh, yeah, what do you do with that? Um now, I, 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 and I don't mean to in some way uh, picture it's not that Catholicism was free of this or was not itself involved in this. Uh, but if, you know, these characters, Luther and Hegel, are definitive of Protestantism, uh, and of course I would say, no, in a sense they're not. 
but you do have the Anabaptists. You do have uh, a, a kind of counter to a straight-line Protestantism. Uh, but if they are definitive of Protestantism, uh, then we do have a Christianity that's given itself over to something on the order of the, uh, a nominalism that gives rise to the death of God. Uh, t- say something cheery to, to c- counter. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Yeah, that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) But we've got Kierkegaard. Yes. And so we have this counter movement. We've got Haman. We've got a tradition that is reacting. Even even within Lutheranism, there are these these, uh, people that are very un-Lutheran in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there, there is a kind of rescue that's taking place. But unfortunately, these, as, as broadly read as these, uh, Hamon, well, I don't suppose most people know who Hamon is. Kierkegaard certainly is. Uh, but yet is in no way taken up into a mainstream understanding mm-hmm. of Christianity. So maybe we need Kierkegaard. We definitely need Kierkegaard. Uh, as, as a counter to Hagen as a counter to a failed Protestantism, as a counter to Constantinianism, we need sort. John, thank you. <laughs> it's been good. Good, okay. good conversation. That was a more difficult conversation. <laughs> you had me think on my on the fly. <laughs> <laughs>